The Timeless Podcast Company present this podcast. In immersive sound design. Welcome to the Breaking Anonymity Podcast. My name is MC Search. I'm an addict. And I'm Kyle Eustace. And she is also my co-host. This podcast is about breaking not only anonymity and, and having people that we respect talk about their recovery, but also breaking the stigma about what recovery is and how it works in uh, each of our lives. Uh, we have people come on this show that we love and respect, not only for who they are as artists or celebrities or influencers, but as human beings and people that have kind of overcome their isms, as we like to say, around these ways and um, become men and women of recovery. Kyle, please introduce our special guest for this week. I would love to. All right, hailing from Boston, Massachusetts, MC and actor slain as part of the rap supergroup La Coca Nostra, as well as a successful solo artist. His extensive discography boasts five studio albums, if I have that right, including this year's The Things We Can't Forgive and multiple EPs and mixtapes. But beyond that, he's been outspoken in his music about his struggles with addiction and subsequent recovery. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Slain to the Breaking Anonymity podcast. How you doing, guys? (laughs) Peace, peace, peace. (laughs) Coca. Yeah. I mean, Serge, I think this is the first time I've officially met you, which is crazy because we have these mutual friends that we're both really close with. Like, You know, I know how close you are with Eclipse and with Bill and the history that you have both of them. I was just and, thinking, uh, didn't we meet, didn't you and I meet at like a Triple G fight with Vinny Paz? Like, I want to say that did no, that happen? I, I that did not there. happen. I, I, I saw you coming out of the halftime show, but I think you were chopping it up with with Everlast or Danny or whatever, and I didn't end up really, you know, getting to officially chop it up with you. I also was supposed to be with them when we came on the White Rapper show as guests, <laughs> and I was I was on the plane, I was on the runway, and the plane and there was a lightning storm or something. It was in the summertime, I think, and uh, right, it was, and I didn't make it. I didn't get, I didn't make it to the oh, show. So I didn't get to be Yo, no. I was I was telling a friend of mine, a mutual friend of ours. I was like, yo, I'm going to definitely tell him about that time I was at the Triple G fight and him and Vinny Paz rolled up on me at the fight and, and we're talking about how good my seats were. But that was not you. It was so not I me. Now, I, I now feel, I feel very foul. I feel very exposed and wrong. <laughs> I feel like anyway. there's like a lot of people that look like me or something, man, because so many people... You know, all the addicts, we all look alike, man. <laughs> no, part of it, I think, is like out in sobriety... First of all, it's like getting dropped into someone else's life in the beginning when you mm. first get sober. I'm like, I don't remember shit the right way. Am I supposed to know this person? And then you add like a little, you know, people come up and they think, you know, they know you anyways because of music or movies. And I'm like, do I really know this person or not? And it's like, I mean, I had a girl who like was insinuating like that. I don't know, like I slept with her or something. I know I didn't for a fact. I'm like, this chick is bugging. You know, but I think people, you know, there's there's a, well, there's a lot of heavy set dudes with beer. Let me tell you something. If if there's any way for us to meet, brother, to meet in in one of these situations where we're talking about our recovery, everything happens for a reason, brother. So please up? shut up and let you tell your story. Yeah. So uh, I'm known by slang, but when I'm in the recovery community, 
I identify as George. Um, my name is George. I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. And, uh, you know, it's real important for me to stay middle of the pack. I'm the same as any other alcoholic or addict. You know, I suffer from this. You know, some people say disease. Some people say affliction, illness, whatever. It doesn't really matter to me. It's all semantics. It's just something that I know I got. Um, I think I was born with it. You know, I don't think it's something that you become. I think it's something that you're born with, especially the more that I understand about it and the more clarity I get. I think it's the actual disease or the illness is something that we treat with drugs and alcohol. That's what gives me relief. It gives me relief from, uh, I don't know if it's the ego or the self-centered fear or whatever it is, but it's, it's that thing that lies to me in my head. It tells me I'm going to lose everything I have, never going to get what I want. And as I am right now, I'm not good enough. And I treated that since I was a kid with drugs and alcohol. You know, I'm from Boston, I, uh, Dorchester originally. I moved around a lot all over the city as a kid. I always felt kind of like an outsider, like I never fit in. I know that's, that's common with uh, alcoholics and addicts. And uh, the first time I drank, I didn't feel that way. You know, I felt, uh, I felt connected for the first time and I felt, I felt like it was something that uh, that I was missing my whole life and that I found it. And I wanted to feel that way forever. I never wanted it to stop. And um, and that's how I drank and used for a long time. I went very quickly from, from alcohol to um, anything that I could put in my system. I wanted to try what everything was, uh, you know, before a year. I mean, I started drinking when I was 14, I think. And I was doing cocaine the same year, uh, angel dust anything that I could get my hands on. And, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun. And it, it was, uh, I just enjoyed the language of it, the culture, like, you know, like I said, I, I moved around a lot. So it always gave me a, a way, it was like, you know, when you go to Europe and you need the different adapters to plug stuff in, that was like what drugs and alcohol was for me. It was like, anywhere I go, I got my adapter. And, um, you know, I, I learned how to sell drugs wasn't very good at that monkeys can't sell bananas you know i enjoyed that too it felt like it was something that you know again just like the whole culture of it and and, and chopping stuff up and bagging stuff and i just like that and uh you know i drank and used for a long time i um i was running into trouble with it in high school i remember a guidance counselor called me and I went to a Catholic high school in Boston called Don Bosco. It's a technical high school. Um, nobody really, mostly nobody went to college after that. People like went out to get union jobs and construction jobs and stuff like that. And the guidance counselor called me into the office and said I had like the seventh highest SAT score in, in the grade. And I, and I was like, really? What did I get? And she's like 1050, which isn't really that high. And I was like, that that's the, uh, the seventh highest score. I was like, man, this class is, there's not that many smart kids here. But she said, that's not what I'm, I'm calling you in for. What I'm calling you in for is, you know, I think that you're an alcoholic and I want you to take this test with me. I want you to answer some of these questions. And I thought she was crazy. By the, at the end of the test, she said that I was off the charts, that I was, you know, 16 years old and already an alcoholic you know I was showing up to school on acid smoking angel dust drunk all that and um you know I kept going like that I didn't really think I needed help I wasn't too interested in that I, I went to my first meeting uh when I was 18 years old 
I think when I when I looked around the room, I was like, these people are way worse than me. And uh, this was when people were still smoking cigarettes in the meeting. It was like old people to me. You know, I was like, I'm not hanging out here with these people. And, uh, you know, I went off and running again. And over the course of many, many years, uh, I would continue to go back into those rooms. And um, it took me 15 years to get 30 days. It took me 15 years to get a 30-day chip. You know, I didn't know what I didn't know. I think after about maybe 10 years going to meetings, I, um, I started looking around and thinking, I'm way worse than these people. You know, because if these people were like me, if they were as bad an alcoholic as me, they would still be drinking. They wouldn't be in here. And, um, you know, it got it got dark in my in my mid 20s for a while. And, um, you know, my friends were all dying and going to jail. And um, I was like at a at a rock bottom level. Somebody somebody was back in the music and I was at this time just kind of making mixtapes and stuff like that and I had you know somebody in the street was back in my music and um, we went into this warehouse to build a recording studio and I was going to live in there and, and um, you know we built it about halfway and then he took a pinch and uh, you know the bills were no longer being paid there and I ended up having a squat in this warehouse for about six months there was no hot water there was no electricity I was charging my phone at the after hours spot up the street. And um, I was going, I was trying to get sober. And I would always keep going back to meetings. And, um, you know, I did, I did like them. You know, I felt like connected there to some extent. I just didn't understand how people, you know, I would go to the meeting, I would hear somebody sharing, I'd drink afterwards, you know. And um, I didn't understand what those steps were on the wall. You know, it looked like a bunch of like religious writing to me or like, Danny boy always says like that's like for the advanced students the honor roll students or whatever and it's like that's how I felt I was like I'm not gonna do that and like you lose me at step two when you mention God I'm like I'm a done deal with that and uh I didn't get sober anyways I was ass out I was unemployable I had been you know fired from from jobs and and I'm trying to get this music hustle going I'm squatting in this warehouse you know the girl left you know, a year or two before that. And, um, you know, I was in a pretty dark place and, you know, something crazy happened at that time. Um, I had signed like a pre-production deal with DJ Lethal and I recorded some stuff with him and I put out this mixtape. It was the first mixtape I put out. It was called The White Man is the Devil, Volume 1. It's about cocaine. It was where I was at at that time, you know? And, uh, Started getting a buzz in, in the streets in Boston. It was kind of like a drug epidemic was going on at that time. And in retrospect, I was writing from the center of it. And, you know, we started selling those mixtapes. I pressed up 50 copies of them and I gave, you know, a stack to a bunch of different drug dealers. And if you bought a 40 bag of Coke, you had to get the CD with it. So it was $50. You know, and and we sold 13,000 CDs like that. I always say there's probably some dude in Dorchester who had a stack of like 95 White Men as a Devil Volume 1 CDs with powder on them. <laughs> yeah, at that time, um, you know, I had linked up, you know, with Lethal and Danny a little before that and um, with Ill Bill. And then Everlast came into the fray and I'm flying out to LA, you know, Lita was flying me out to LA and I would crash on Danny boy's couch. And, uh, we started recording the beginning of what would be 
uh, La Coca Nostra, brand you can trust and all that. They say the pen's like a sword right before my son Osali was born. Knocking your door, pop the entire mind on the floor. And um, the Boston Herald did a story about that at that time. And I was up at that after hours bar till 7 a.m. I walked up to Methadone Mile on Mass Ave to the mobile gas station right there. And the Herald had written a story about Bacoca and, you know, a little bit of my backstory. And I got every newspaper on the rack and I walked back to that warehouse and I climbed up the ladder where I had this mattress. And, um, and I remember reading it and laughing, you know, and then passing out, waking up at three in the afternoon, I had all these missed phone calls. And, uh, you know, it was a lot of people saying they had seen me in the in the newspaper, but, you know, it was also uh, Ben Affleck's people reaching out to me to come in and audition for this movie that he was directing. It was his directorial debut. It's called Gone Baby Gone. And it was kind of late in the afternoon, and I was, I was uh, not feeling so hot. I told him, I'll be in there tomorrow. And... Uh, you know, I got good and drunk before I went in for that audition. I went in for the audition and um, they brought me back in and I went in for another one and another one. And, and ultimately they uh, offered me the role for that. And uh, I was, you know, at this rock bottom level. And then all of a sudden my life started to change and all my dreams started to come true. And I was working with my heroes, you know, House of Pain was my favorite group as a kid. You know what I mean? Um, I love the, you know, I, I bought the first House of Pain album before I even heard a song off of it. They, I was like, these dudes are sitting in a bar room. There's a shamrock on the cover. I'm in. And, uh, and then obviously the music was just incredible too. So, I mean, these are guys I looked up to. They were my heroes. And um, now I go from the situation I was in to touring around the world with these guys you know, I'm on a movie set doing a movie with Ed Harris and Morgan Freeman with Ben Affleck directing me, Casey Affleck, just so many great actors in that movie. And, uh, you know, my, my high school sweetheart came back and, um, you know, worked things out and we got married and we had a beautiful baby boy and I was living my dream. And, um, you know, I felt like I figured this out. I figured out how to, how to drink and get high the way I want to and still be a functional adult, like I'm living my dream. But, you know, I was I was really able to compartmentalize a lot. I'm, I'm big on the compartmentalizing. It's like one of my character defects. So I think I can do this over here and then be this guy over here and this guy over here and, and play all these different kind of stage characters or roles in my life. And, uh, you know, that doesn't work out too well when you're drinking two-fifths a day. See, we would go on tour and, and um, on the rider, I would always have a, a fifth of Grey Goose and a fifth of Jameson. I would drink a fifth of Grey Goose before stage, a fifth of Jameson afterwards, and whatever drugs I could find in whatever city we were in in between, I would, I would do that to help me stay awake. Uh, cocaine was the preferred drug of choice for me. Um, I also needed the Xanax to help me go to sleep to stop me from shaking you know I would wake up after a three-day run just with this sense of terror where it's like my you know my hands shaking like that but my liver is shaking like that and my lungs are shaking like that everything in my body and I need the only thing that can fix it is the benzos and some more booze and um I drank like that a long time
couldn't come, I couldn't compartmentalize being being a father. Couldn't compartmentalize marriage. I was failing in those areas, and as everything started to look really good on the outside, with the success that I was having, it was really collapsing on the inside. My body was collapsing. I was about 65 pounds heavier than I am now. I was in and out of the emergency room frequently. I would disappear for days at a time, come home covered in blood with a story. You know, I love, I love my son. Love my son. I guess um, ultimately that would be the thing that woke me up. You know, because I thought like I'm a good father. I love my son. You know, I, I, you know, I'm put, I'm putting money in the bank. I'm supporting him. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing all these things, and um, it's about action. You know, and if I'm if I'm out for days at a time and disappearing, I'm unreliable. It's uh, then it's a lie to tell myself that I'm a good dad, right? So, I tried to get sober so bad, so many times. I just didn't understand why I couldn't see. Like, when I get 11 days or 15 days, that's when my problem starts. Like, you take alcohol and drugs away from somebody like me, you haven't solved my problem. My problem is just beginning, because now I'm stuck with this and things start to pile up. And I need a drink just to face the day. I need a drink to face the world. I, I went into detox in, uh, in 2010 for around Christmas and I, I wanted to save my marriage and save my family and uh, that benzo withdrawal, I don't know. I know a lot of people have been through that, but it's, uh, it was nothing nice. And um, you know, my album got pulled for sample clearances like a week before it came out. You know, and this is like, I've been working my whole life to put out this debut solo album and, you know, ride the wave of, you know, the Lakota record came out right before that. The Town, which was the second movie I was in, came out and I had this record. It was like the record of my life. I was ready to drop it and the label pulled it because the sample clearances. So I'm like in a spiral. I'm losing my mind. I have to re-record it without samples and I don't know how to record. I don't know how to make music without drugs and alcohol in my system. I need it. I need it. That's what my head is telling me. You you can't do this without that. How am I going to walk out on stage? How am I going to be creative? And I, and I remember I'm trying to save my family. I'm trying to save my marriage, all this stuff. I'm going in the studio. I'm trying to save my career too. And I can't do this without a drink. And I, uh, I relapsed at the studio one night. I uh, stopped at the drug spot on the way home. I got good and high and uh, came walking in the door 7 a.m. And my, um, my wife was waiting in the kitchen for me and she told me, get up. And uh, that was the last night that I was married. I went down to to shoot Killing Them Softly. So I'm doing a movie with Brad Pitt, James Gandolfini, and Ray Liotta. And it's like, still, the outside is like shining. And I'm, you know, living my dream. But man, I was broken. You know, I'm passing out drunk on the roof of the hotel. And um, I came home and it was like, now I have nothing stopping me from drinking and getting high how I want to. And I went on like that for another few years. And, you know, there were times I would go into the rooms and I would try to get sober. And Danny, Danny boy, uh, you know, he was sober at that point. When I met him and I was crashing on his couch, he was not. He was fucked up in the game. And um, I knew it worked for him. I just thought it wasn't going to work for me. And, and when, uh, you know, I've traded a 30-day chip for a free drink. You know what I mean? Like, 
And it took, the, you're talking about something that took me 15 years to get, and I traded for a free drink at, a, at, at the Roosevelt Hotel. And, um, you know, I think um, it was the end of 2013. I was living by coastally in L.A. and Boston, and I would come back to see my son. Came back to see him for Christmas. I saw him on Christmas, but I'm supposed to see him the next day. I did not. My friend died. I went to a, his wake and went on a bender. And then I... Uh, I'm still awake. I have a show in Philly. I need more drugs to stay awake. I go to do a show in Philly, collapse when I get off stage, come home, go on a bender for New Year's. Every day I'm supposed to go out and see my son, and I never made it out there, you know? And uh, his mom told me, um, you know what you're doing to him? You know, he was five years old at the time. She says, uh, your son told me, uh, daddy tricked me again. And that was the thing, man. That was the thing after 20 years of trying to get sober and all that. I didn't get sober right then, but that's what gave me the willingness to really do the work because I started to realize none of this other shit means anything. None of this stuff means anything compared to this. Like I started to see it was gonna affect my son. This is preventing me from being a father to my son. They say you have to get sober for yourself. And um, I think that's a lie. I don't think that's true. I think a lot of us, like, it, it might sound corny, but we don't love ourselves enough to get sober for ourselves. But I love my son enough to put the work in for him. Over time, to stay sober and recover, yes, you have to put the work in for yourself. But what gave me the willingness to do it was because I love my son and he needs a good dad, and I'm it. A couple months later, I, I walked in after another really, you know, bad bender, and I walked into the comedy store and in Los Angeles and um, on Sunset, and I uh, I got a 24-hour chip. And um, I didn't think it would work for me. I had tried it too many times. I had tried for decades, and it never worked before. But I had nowhere else to go. I didn't know how to get sober. So, you know, I got a sponsor, and I started, started following some instruction. And, um, you know, all that religious writing on the wall that I thought in those 12 steps, I, I started to get a different approach, you know. My sponsor said to me, you know, you don't have to become like this follower of Jesus overnight. Like, you don't have to become a Buddhist. You don't have to convert to Judaism. Like, you just need to find a power greater than you. Do you think you're the greatest power in the universe? I said, no, not at all. And he said, all right, so by reasonable deduction, then there is a power greater than you. And I said, yeah, I guess so. So, you know, I started with the universe. I picked the universe. That's some wild shit. You know, it's something that I can see it. And it's beyond my wildest imagination. The sun is 93 million miles away. If it was 80 million miles away, we'd burn alive. If it was 100 million miles away, we'd freeze to death. The next closest star to that sun, you travel 186,000 miles a second. It takes you two and a half years to get to that. And there are more fucking stars in the sky than there are grains of sand on all the beaches of Earth combined. That blows my fucking mind. That's a power greater than me. You know, if anybody tries to tell you this is what God is and this is, it's like, nobody knows that shit. I don't have to crack that code. I don't have to be on the debating society. I don't have to argue about religion, nothing. I just have to establish my own contact. He told me, you don't got to memorize no prayers. You don't got to go to church, nothing. I just want you to ask that universe to just please remove my obsession with drugs and alcohol. And I did that. And I did that every day. And I started to get into this work. And um, I started to become willing. 
and I started to follow the direction of somebody who had been through it before. See, we got alcoholism and addiction. You go to the doctor, they don't got an answer for you. There ain't a pill to fix this shit. You know what I mean? Only thing that I've ever seen work is another alcoholic or addict who's worked a solid program of recovery and come out the other side can show another one how to do it. And that's the way it works. You know, I had to learn humility. You know, when my uh, my ex-wife got remarried, I, you know, my default setting, she told me like she met a guy and she's getting remarried. I had 28 days sober. I drove to the bar and I'm about to walk in. And for the first time in the history of the, all those years I was going to, to AA, I, uh, I called my sponsor and he told me, well, you don't want to drink. You want to stay sober. Otherwise, you wouldn't have called me first. He said, so here's what I want you to do. He goes, I want you to go to a, go to a meeting. I want you to talk about what you're going through. He goes, I want you to reach out to somebody who has two or three days at that meeting and ask them how they're doing. Because you got 28 days and you know how to stay sober for 28 days. You can help that person. And he goes, and then you know how you've been praying to the universe. He goes, I want you to go home and I want you to pray that they get everything that they want. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I wasn't on the list, (laughs) but I did it because I wanted to stay sober. And after about a week, I started to realize, uh, you know, what I was really afraid of is that I was going to lose my relationship with my son. I was, you know, I couldn't let that happen. And I I started to realize the only thing that's going to make that happen is if I keep drinking and doing drugs. So I kept working that program of sobriety and, and I learned about amends. And part of that amends was like, showing up and, and meeting this guy before he met my son. And uh, that was a, what my sponsor told me was a living amends. He said, we're not on that part of the steps yet, but you get to make a living amends right here. You're gonna help her rebuild her life. You know, you burned it to the ground you, along with yours. And you know, you get to do this. You're lucky you get to do this. And you're lucky she's so solid to ask you to come in you know, to meet this guy first. And uh, these were all concepts that I never have had tried before. You know, these, this was a new way of living that I was, I was willing because I was so broken. I was desperate to stay sober. And this is what this, this friend of mine had told me that I should do. And um, I stayed sober, man. And I got that 90 days and, and my obsession was gone. It was gone. And I stopped doing this work more and I do the inventory and the resentments and the fears and the amends process. And then I start taking somebody else through the steps. I didn't get my spiritual experience while I was doing my own step work. It was when I started helping somebody else. And then when they would tell me something, I'd say, that's not that bad, man. Like, he's a good guy. You're a good guy. You're doing the best you can. These are some of the ways. And I start to, then I can say that about myself. You know what I mean? Because for years, I beat the shit out of myself with, with things I did, the things I couldn't forgive in myself. And, um, you know, now my relationship with my son is just amazing. 
I do holidays with them with with his mom is one of my best friends in the world. My son's stepdad, a good friend of mine. They have uh, two babies and her new marriage, two kids, and and they call me Uncle George. And um, that's what happens when I turn it over. And, you know, my sponsor told me, like, can you believe this is what a third step is? Can you believe somewhere in the universe that this is part of the plan? This is the best thing for you. This is the best thing for her. This is the best thing for him and the best thing for your son. I said, I could try. I could try. And when I turn that over and, you know, that's the kind of thing that happens when I turn it over. I try to take my will back all the time. That's the step that I struggle. Like, you know, I think I got the right answer. It's like, nah, when I don't resist and I just let things happen, that's always the best thing that happens for me. So, you know, nowadays, uh, recording, recording and making music sober was so difficult in the beginning. And I had a breakthrough about three years. So I recorded, but it was an uphill battle, put out a couple records, but now it's like it's just flowing out of me at the highest level I feel like it ever, ever has. Like, I'm lucky to still continue to act. I just did a movie in, in August. But even more important, my life has balance. I get to be a good father. I get to be a good friend. You know, I started during this pandemic working in recovery and trying to get my different certifications. I want to be able to advocate for people like in, in recovery court. And, and I love... You know, as much as I'm passionate about music and acting, I also love seeing people put their families back together and their lives back together. I also, you know, I met a woman that I'm madly in love with and, and uh, she has two little girls and I get to be, you know, a positive force in their lives. And, uh, you know, shit gets real sometimes. You'll hear some of that documented on this latest record that I just put out. And, um, and, I, and I used the music as a pathway in my recovery to help me too and I try to help another guy stay sober and and that's it and I do it a day at a time and so far it worked I just celebrated seven years last week so wow congratulations what's your official clean date March 3rd 2014 March 3rd it's perfect March right we got St. Patty's Day coming up <laughs> how do you celebrate St. Patty's Day now <laughs> Oh shit! The first when I first got sober, it was two weeks before St. Patty's Day, and I do I do a St. Patty's Day run every year, thirteen years straight until last year. And the first one I did, I was like, "Fuck," you know. And then when uh, when I got through that six shows or whatever sober, I was like, "Shit, I might actually do it this time," you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, part of your story, I I liked that you mentioned you actually started going to meetings when you were just eighteen. And I was curious, is that kind of when the recovery seed was planted for you? Because I feel like when I started going to meetings, it kind of ruined using for me after that. You know, you like always felt kind of guilty when you were doing it. You know what? I never felt guilty when I was drinking or using after that for a long time. I don't know why, but uh, yeah, it took me so long. And the reason I always highlight that it took me 15 years to get a 30 day chip is because mm -hmm. This is fucking alcoholism. It's such a fucked up thing to overcome. Like, mm. you know, I got that blue collar alcoholism. I didn't just get it the first try. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, so I try to reinforce the people. Like, if you've already been to detox a hundred times, if you've already been coming around for a decade, like you can still fucking do it. You never know if this is the time. Like, you just got to mm. put the work in and you got to do some things that are contrary to the way that you were doing it before. Like I never thought that I would do any of those things, you know, like that would have been 
crazy to me, like soft. It would be soft mm. to me not to, you know, I want to wreak havoc and nobody's going to tell me. And you know what I'm saying? It's like, mm-hmm. that's broken. That don't work. That doesn't work. That landed me in, in, uh, in a bad spot with nothing. So. Mm. I also thought it was pretty remarkable that you were able to um, nail your audition drunk when you <laughs> auditioned for those movies. And I'm wondering, you know, when you started to get into film and stuff like that, that did that intensify your addiction at all? Did it make it worse? Did it have any effect at all? Or Well, here's the difference between music and film. Like music, I can show up drunk and I can be loaded. Uh, that was the only time when I showed up for that audition after it got serious and I knew they were giving me the, I was able to regulate. Um, you can't really shoot a 12 hour day on a movie while you're drinking. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's, it's, it's not even feasible. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Cause you have to mm-hmm. consistently do these scenes and you know, you can't be slurring six hours later. It doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> it's not good editing. Why? No. For the editing. But, uh, yeah, I, I actually the longest I was sober prior to this was when I was doing uh, the town. I was sober for seventy seven days on that. And that was the longest mm. I ever got. And so now, mm. that must have been tough, huh? I mean, we had a scene in it where it was. I think it was after we did the first robbery, and we're like cleaning the money. We go to the strip joint, and you know, and I had to do fake cocaine in it. I think I was like 45 <laughs> days sober and I'm like doing fake lines. You know, I have my sponsor, like nobody knew it was my sponsor, but I had my sponsor there and I'm like, bro, I, I'm dying mm-hmm. right now, you know? Yeah, that does not sound <laughs> like a fun time, but I'm glad you got through that part. Um, Serge, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, and I, I want to share with you that I, I was in a room, clubhouse with a a bunch of artists and uh, the amount of respect that people have for your rap and your skill game right now is crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you haven't heard it from other MCs, people are just feel like you are just getting better and better and better and better. And then this album is just so evident of where you are lyrically right now, where your skill set is. Do you feel like, um, like, listen, it ain't me. It's a whole bunch of other artists, the Lupe fiascos of the world, the Royce Five Nines of the world. Like I was in a room with those types of dudes and they were talking about your new album. But do you feel like recovery plays a part in that um, in terms of where you are? Or is it more about that you feel more centered and, and more grounded due to recovery? I think it's a it's a little bit of of everything. First of all, like, you know, like I said, when you take the drugs and alcohol away from me, that's when my problems start. So when I'm going in the studio at 45 days sober, 60 days sober, that's what I identify as the addiction and the alcoholism is this self-loathing voice in my head where I'm like, run it back. Let me do it again. Let me do it again. Let me do it again. It's never fucking good enough. It's never good enough. Like I hold, I set the standard for myself here and I destroy myself when I land here and working through that. It took me the first three years of my recovery to really like work through that and, and use that same device where it's like, I asked the universe, just help me to write what I'm supposed to write today, which you want me to write today. You know what I mean? And to just channel, please fill me with all the creativity from the universe. Please fill me with compassion for myself, with forgiveness for myself, all that. Right. And it's like, because you deserve it. Yeah. And I think it comes from like this broken thing where it's like, I need to be so good. I need to be so great. 
and if I'm not, then I'm not worth anything. I'm not good. And you know what I mean? Instead of what I've had a revolution, it's really revolutionized the way I write is like, just help me to write what I'm supposed to write today, what I'm here for, what am I supposed to do today? And just get to the truth of it and not worry about how it's received, not worry about how many it sells, not worry about like any of that, that any of it or what anyone thinks, nothing. And just get to the truth of what I'm feeling right now, what I'm going through right now. I love and, how you started breaking down the 93 million miles um, because that's all the knowledge I used to get from the five percenters that I grew up with. So like knowing Earth to the Sun is 93 million miles, the 74, you know, 0.6 million square feet on the planet Earth, three quarters of the Earth is made with water. You know, all of the math that I used <laughs> to get from the gods and the Earths that I grew up with um, because I always had this incredible sense of a power greater than myself always. I grew up mm. with it. But I remember a guy in a meeting saying that for him, there is no identification for that word G-O-D as a, a, as a, a universal power. For him, he breaks it down as grow or die. If mm. you're not growing, you're dying. Mm. Um, and that was his, for him personally, that was his power greater than himself. That if he was not growing, you know, he was dying. So I love how you utilized that philosophy in your practice. Um, and also something that you and I have very similar is, you know, I got clean because my, my wife gave me an ultimatum. You know, um, mm -hmm. that was not something I was going to sacrifice. And I, and I look at my recovery as there's two types of it. There's a compromise and a sacrifice, right? So you compromise using your DOC. You compromise you know, getting those things to lose your family is a sacrifice. Right. Um, and like, for me, like I relapse is not part of my, my story because for me, for this addict, I, it was made very clear. Like at the time when I got clean, if I relapsed, everything was gone. Mm -hmm. My wife, my children, everything. And uh, for this addict, I couldn't bear that part of it, you know? Like, so mm -hmm. I, I truly love how important your fatherhood is to you. You know, oh, you gosh, it's... a blended family, which is even more beautiful. Yeah, I mean, just the way you talk about your son is so evident. I mean, that he's everything to you. And I think that's so admirable in any man, you know, <laughs> it's pretty cool to see. Um, I did want to touch on too, you mentioned that, I mean, you almost thought you had to quit music, you know, in order to get sober. And so do you real? do you remember when that shift happened when you're like, oh, wait, actually, like, I can do this sober. Like, I, I am still creative. It's within me. It's not something, you know, I get from the outside. It, um, you know, it actually was how I learned surrender is that I had to surrender. I thought that, I, you know, I did ultimately surrender music. And put my put my son in front of that, and I was like, if I have to, if I have to stop making music in order to be a good father to my son, then I will. And that was really pivotal for me because I put it in front of everything. I put my this music dream in front of everything and everybody in my life at any sacrifice. There was no law I wasn't willing to break. There was nobody I wasn't willing to hurt or injure or or manipulate or charm or however I had to do it to get where I'm going. I'm getting where the fuck I'm going. You know what I'm saying? And 
to turn that over and just be like, maybe it's not in the cards anymore. You know what I'm saying? That was pivotal. I've started to realize that it wasn't something, you know, that I don't believe that the universe gave me a gift to do this, to let it lie dormant or to throw it away. But I think it was a test for me, you know, to, to give that, to be willing to give it up. And I think working through um, a lot of that, really ultimately it's self-centered fear, right? So it's like working through some of these these fears and defects of character. Once I started peeling back the layers and let the light come in a little more, then I was able to do it from a purer place where I wasn't worried about any validation or success or or money or fame or any of that. And it's more like, let's just do this because we love to do it. You know, let's do this because I love it. I love to do this from a very pure place. And I think the breakthrough happened. It took so long to record one day because I was going through that process of really getting my confidence back ultimately. And, you know, to thine own self be true, the record I did with terminology took four years, um, you know, but then right towards the last couple months of recording one day, I just had this massive creative breakthrough. And then, and then when we put that out, I was already recording the things we can't forgive. I mean, it was things we can't forgive was done a long time ago, uh, maybe like a year ago, not done, but it's 75% of it. And, um, yeah, man, it's just, it just feels, just feels better. It feels, Mm -hmm. feels good. You know? Yeah. I mean, I can relate to that a little bit too. Like as a journalist, I thought, so my latest addiction, so I got clean in, um, 2006 from alcohol and then from everything else in 2010. So I just celebrated, my 11 years on March 1st. Um, Congratulations. And, thank oh, we're you. We're two days apart on us. I know. Days. We're so close. Yeah. Um, it, you know, and I just remember, I almost felt like I was living like different lives, you know, and you mentioned kind of something about that, you know, being uh, different characters, you know, at one point. Have you, do you think you figured out who the real George is or is that still a evolving process? I mean, I think that's life. It's evolving. And I think we change. And I think the biggest shift that's happened to me in my sobriety are my values. You know, mm-hmm. what I want, what's important to me has changed. You know, and I talk about, you know, fame, money, prestige, property, all that stuff. It's like, that's so much less important to me now. And what's more important to me is being a good dad, you know, the truth of this creative process and really understanding like how much of a gift it is just to get to do this and like still do it professionally at 43 years old. That's crazy. I never, Oh, you're a baby. and that's what it is. It's like who, who I am. Like, I mean, I think, I think that's why I make music. Mm-hmm. find that out you know what I'm saying like I get to take a look back and it's these time capsules and I get to see where I'm at and what I'm going through you know this record was such a process of of like you know ultimately forgiving myself which it took me a long time to do and I realized like everything that I'm carrying in here I'm projecting into this outside into my outside reality one of the things that you had said before is that uh, early on in your recovery that uh, you didn't have to say any prayers. And I remember somebody in a in a meeting recently that I was in saying something very similar. And my sponsor, who happens to be in my home group, said, you pray every day. You just don't realize that you say the serenity prayer every day. Mm. Um, and for me, I, you know, for me, like, again, I was a pretty, 
as as ill bill likes to say i'm the mega jew you know i'm pretty i'm pretty i'm pretty fucking mega jewy you know, I'm, I'm super mc fucking super bagel right but um i and, and there's certain prayers that i say that are just you know certain jewish tenets of my you know belief system however when i started to regularly say the serenity prayer every day when i meditate in the morning and before i eat and before i go to sleep you know it replaced so much of, you know, the Jewish tenets that I normally practice because my spiritual practice is my recovery. Mm. Like my spiritual principles have become my recovery. And I love the fact that you talked about your creative process because I haven't really shared this with a lot of people, but I'm in the studio now for the first time in like 27 years working on an album. And I never, ever recorded under the influence, ever freestyle was never a part of my journey and when i started to use um because i was a casual user and then it became a problem um and then it got to a point where it was such a problem that you know um you know i was given an ultimatum by my family but i wasn't being creative like i would i, I still write for a boss every now and then Forever. You know, you'll just hear a line in your head and that muscle memory. But I never thought about it in a attachment to a record or attachment to whatever. And then I did a, a verse for this this group like five years ago. Um, and then it started to kind of all kind of come back. But it was so different hmm. because I was different. And I realized that the person that had started recording early on in his career, the person that people identified as MC Search, no longer existed. Yeah. Like that human being no longer exists. Like that. Fuck, I dude, fucking that, relate to that. Yeah. Man. You know what I'm saying? Like, yo, know, the dude that hustled and scammed and worked his magic. I mean, I remember sitting my wife down when we first moved in. The day we moved in, I said, yo, Understand you come second to my music. You ever get in the way of my music, you're gone. Yo, I said the same thing. That's you know I mean? What was her response uh, to that yeah. at the time? Like, she I said, have to know. She, and she looked me straight in the face and she said, I'm going to give you two and a half years of my life. And if you don't wife me, I'm gone. Ooh, I love Chantel. And two, <laughs> years, and two years to the day, I put a ring on it. But the the point was that music was my savior. Music was my everything. Like, music... I had worked my ass off to get where I was, you know, really worked my ass off to get where I was. Um, and I wasn't going to let her, I, was, I certainly wasn't going to let love, commitment to a relationship, anything get in the way of, of going to that place. But then when I got into recovery, that wasn't a priority. There were mm -hmm. so many other priorities. And, you know, now that I think about recording and, you know, also like, working with artists that I never thought in my wildest dreams I'd be working with, the mm. writing process is so hard. It's so hard. Not only because it's completely foreign to me, because I'm a different human being than I'm, I am now, you know, but the priorities have shifted. You know, my life has shifted. And I don't want to be a cornball either. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't want to be, that's the worst shit ever is like, you know, you, you, you talk about beating yourself up in those levels. Um, but I do find that zone where I hit something, I hit a note, or I hit a verse and that swag gets on a thousand 
And I'm like, okay, I'm unfuckwittable right now. Like okay, <laughs> I'm there. Yeah. And I'm able to then, but then I'm able to do my service work. Like I'm on the support line, right? And a call will come in and I'll, I, I literally just dropped a verse and now I have to pivot and pick up the, the, the support line. And there's a dude who's trembling and now my swag is on a thousand to help him. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm like, yo, money, I got you. I got you. What you need? I got you. I'm here for you. You, you sick? You want me to call 211? I got you. You need an Uber? You got, you know, and that pivot, you know, and the the gleam in your eye, brother, to see where you are. It's beautiful stuff. It's beautiful stuff. I have one more question um, on my end, too. Um, I don't know if you guys can relate to this, but, you know, years into my sobriety or clean time, whatever you want to call it, I realized that I was really good at abusing, like, anything. And I suddenly realized <laughs> <laughs> that Me I too. was addicted. Like, I had, like, a Facts. hardcore freaking espresso addiction all of a sudden. I'm, like, slamming, I mean, ounces of mm -hmm. coffee every single day. I'm, like, to the point where I'm, like, shaking. And I had to put that down about a year ago. And so now I can't even drink decaf. I can't drink a regular. <laughs> I mean, it's it's fucked up, yo. It's fucked up. So have you guys? <laughs> I have about seven iced coffees a day. Like oh, I have yeah. three decaf iced coffees a day. But my right now, I got to tell you my my what I've replaced. So when I I I realized this with my and and I want to ask you, Slain, about this too because you talked about the weight loss and I I'm search I'm addicted to Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> um, but I found that when I started peeling back my recovery, it wasn't my DOC I was addicted to. It was the it was the other things. It was my defects that I was addicted to. Yeah, it was the behavior. my behavioral defects, right? Those were the addictions I truly had. I was using just to like numb the pain. And then once I got past the pain, like I was I really had to face my addictions, my hustling, my stealing, my lying, my womanizing, my abuse. Your donuts. To, my donuts and <laughs> and and all of that. Um and as I started to remove those things, like I started to feel like the other things that replaced that, right, were being of service, you know, writing again, you know, uh, being creative, all that stuff. Like, what were some of the things that once you were, you know, like you said, you removed that, what were some of the things that helped you kind of streamline your life and the other addictions that you had? Because obviously losing 65 pounds you definitely were addicted to the duncan as well oh yeah yeah well stopping with stopping with the two-fifths a day helped that's that's for sure <laughs> yeah right and i gotta say it too and 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 i i was you know going to the gym was really part of my recovery too i needed you know it's it's a it's an illness that's mental spiritual and physical we got to address all three and that's where I've been really suffering through this pandemic. You know, as, uh, it's been great in a lot of ways, but, you know, it's got me out of the gym for a year. So, I, I, you know, I'm not as on point as I was a year ago. You know what I'm saying? When, in that regard. But I hey, think you can get to that, too. I've been there. Had to hey, exercise. I'm addicted to Peloton. <laughs> me and my wife got two Pelotons now. We go ham. But no. no, but that's my, but that's really become like, I used to love the bike ride anyway, that's but that's so become funny. my addiction is like, you yeah. know, I, I got to get on the Peloton at least five days a week. Biking's my addiction, but um, I'm in Colorado right now. We're about to get two feet of snow, so I won't be able to do that for a minute. 
I think I just, I've come to like an acceptance that whatever I'm doing, my brain is like, all right, this is what we're doing now. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yes. I'm an, I'm an addict no matter what I do. So if right. I can mm-hmm. fill that with positive stuff, with helping Healthy. other people, with, you yeah. know, then yeah, that's, that's the uh, best route for me. Slane, let me ask you this. George, let me ask you this, brother. Um, to the person who's listening to this, who has no idea about recovery, who has no idea about addiction, who's worried about going into one of these rooms, who has a lot of preconceived notions, you know, what can you share with them in your experience and strength and hope that can help them maybe ease their mind and maybe want to get this life that we, that we have. I think, um, I'll tell you this, and I talked about feeling like an outsider no matter where I was, and that goes from any neighborhood I was in to hip-hop in general to anywhere anywhere I ever was. The only place that I've ever really felt like I really belong is in the rooms, and that's goes even from early on. There's a reason I kept going back because I knew ultimately that there was something there that resonated with me. It was somewhere that I could go. And I could be understood. It was the only place. You know, when we're in meetings, somebody says something that you, if you said it at like a Thanksgiving dinner or any other environment, people would look at you horrified. And you say it in those rooms and everybody laughs and relates. And it's like, <laughs> and, and it's all different kinds of people too. You know what I'm saying? Like, what does it say? We are people who maybe not, would not always associate or. Uh, hey, yeah. You know, I mean, we're friends with people that we never thought in a million years we would ever be friends with. It's and that's crazy. such a beautiful thing. And it's like, you can go there at any time of day for free. You know what I'm saying? And just and and listen to people. My son asked me, what do they do with those meetings? I said, well, it's a place where people put their lives back together. You know, it's a place where people go for hope. And that's what I would say to anybody, you know. I, I was going to say I wanted to laugh when you were talking about going to school on LSD because that's definitely something I did in Catholic school. I would be like on the phone and I'd see, I'd be tripping balls and I'd see like the nuns start walking towards me and just like fear would grip me. And I'm like, oh, shit, I got to get out of here. <laughs> yeah, that's one drug that like, I stopped on my own power, like acid. Ooh, I had know. to. Mm-hmm. Oh, I ended up in a so I did it so much from the age of I think 15 to 20 that I found myself in a hospital um, my freshman year of college so that got me to stop (laughs) I love I love the idea that also that's the that's the uh, rooms where uh, your son got his father back too yeah 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 you know I'm saying facts I asked him if he wanted to come with one with me one night I was like you want to come to one and he's like Nah, I'd rather just play video games. Yeah. <laughs> that's probably a good choice. It's all good. Yeah. It's all good that, that's 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 probably the the right choice. Um, so again, man, thank you so much. Um, Slain's new album is out now. Stream it on all the major services. Uh, yep. You got any new films coming out? What's going on on the? Yeah, side? just shot one during the pandemic in August in Tulsa. I got to kick it with Danny, and Danny actually got a, nice. a little role in it too. Um, oh no way! Yeah, it's called Ida Red, and um, I play a I play a detective from the South down there. And uh, yeah, how's your Southern accent? Let's hear it, it. When I was working on it, it was good. I was I was walking around Tulsa <laughs> ordering food in it, but uh, but right now it's a, it's a little rusty. Yeah, because your uh, your Boston accent is thick. It's like it's, it's like Search's New York accent. Here I Facts. am with my Midwest diction up in here. <laughs> um, and well, that's great, and and. Uh, and when is that supposed to be out? 
that comes should come out later this year. It's called the Ida Red. It has uh, Josh Hart and Frank Grillo, Melissa Leo, William Forsyth. Great, amazing cast. And wow. Danny Boy. Oh, wow. And Danny dope. Boy. I can't forget yeah. Danny Boy. No, that is incredible. Not. And the big question I got to ask you, because Bill, Bill won't let me notice the fucking bastard. Um, <laughs> is there a new Coco record on, on the horizon for all there, us Coco fans? There is. We're working on it right now. That's so. what I want to do. You know, you know, like, you know, you talk seeing that fucking asshole right now. You talk about great (laughs) writers, man. I mean, I don't I feel like Bill doesn't get the credit that he should. He's one of the greatest writers in the history of the genre. Absolutely. And I know, you know, because you worked with him intricately, too. Yo, when he was in, I was so when we put nonfiction together, it was the most intimidated I had ever been in in a studio with another MC. Like, yeah, like. Yo, fucking Bill is a genius. Bill is I, Bill. <laughs> I I told I remember when Necro did I Need Drugs, the uh the remix to I Need Love. Yeah. With Uncle Howie. I remember being at Nassau Coliseum with Eminem and Marshall was coming out of um he and he was he was definitely using at the time was him and proof and he was singing i need love and then all of a sudden he said i need drugs and he was like yo i should do that record and i was standing right there i was like necro and ill bill already did that shit (laughs) he looked at me like i had just fucking bit his shit (laughs) right and i mean it's just it was just one of those things man like it's the coulda woulda shouldas you know like Mm -hmm. if geffen would have listened to me if Wendy fucking Goldstein would have listened to me, like they would have been the Ramones of hip hop. Like nonfiction would have been the Ramones of hip hop. Like that's how we had it set up, the studio, everything. And, you know, the coulda, woulda, shouldas happened. But um, yeah, man, like- And that album is just a classic too. Uh, the future is uh, now- um... It's just, yeah, it's amazing. And, and also everything that you guys have done and you personally, I mean, you're just- you're an amazing MC, and I don't think you get the credit you deserve. Mm-hmm. And it was so nice to be in a clubhouse room and hear how people are like talking about how you just keep getting better and better and better and better. And you deserve your flowers, brother. You deserve your flowers. I appreciate that, man. More years of recovery and, 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 yeah. and more years with your family. That's beautiful. Yeah, and personally for me, it's just really nice to finally get to talk to you. I've wanted to interview you for so long just to hear your story because it's so powerful. And um, I'm just really happy for you. So congratulations. Thanks for having me on. This is actually the first time I ever told my story publicly. Like, you know, I hold stuff back. I don't like... You know, I, you know, but the show is called Breaking Anonymity. I generally like don't talk directly about the stuff with my son and his mother and stuff when I talk publicly. But uh, but I did this time, and that's just. And I the think universe, you're gonna I save, guess. but I think yeah, I think you're gonna save lives, bro. And I think that's the beautiful part about this. At yeah. the end of the day, is that mm-hmm. I think there is, and it's the reason I did it. Like a lot of people don't know I'm in recovery. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. uh, eleven, eleven, eleven is my is my clean date. And oh, wow. you know, and I and I did it. And the reason Kyle and I, you know, decided to do it is is for that reason. There's so much stigma around recovery and there's so much stigma, but there's also so much use because not only because of the pandemic, but just the mm-hmm. opioid addiction is there's such an increase. There's, and- there's so many people dying and, and so many young rap artists too. And I, my hope is that somebody sees somebody like you, a veteran MC, and sees that you did it and can go, Oh shit, like I don't need to do this. I can I can put this down. You 
know, we lost so many like Little Peep and uh, Juice World and all these young kids that are 20, 21. It's just it doesn't need to happen. Mac Miller. I mean, mm. just it didn't need to happen. And so yeah, that's that was, my goal. That was sad. Yeah. In, you know what it is, too, is sometimes that shame can be the thing that prevents you from reaching out to get help. So often it's that stigma. And that's why I'm, you know, very, very vocal about my recovery, because I do believe that with what you said, like, even if it just helps one person, you know what I mean? But like the more of us that step forward with it and say, yeah, this is something that I got and this is something that I have to work on every day. And, and this is what happened. This is what my life is like now. And this is how I do it. Um I mean, I think like the collective of people doing that, even just in the last 20 years, I mean, the first time I went to a meeting, it was like, a, you know, don't tell anybody, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was like, now it's, you know, it's, I think people realize that this is a mental health issue and it's a crisis in this country. Yeah. In the Vietnam War, we lost 69,000 American soldiers. That was over 17 years. We had 82,000 people die from drug overdoses in America last year. That's a Vietnam War every fucking year in America, mm-hmm. you know. And people yeah. don't talk about it enough, you know. I think that it is being talked about a little bit more, but I think a light really needs to be shined on it a lot brighter. And I think the the last thing I wanted to say, because I think it's really important, Slim, because you said, you know, and and Kyle, you you put an exclamation point on it. You know, we connect with people that we would never connect with, you know, over recovery. The first meeting I went to, the very first meeting. There was a dude in there with a cut on and like, you know, I'm I'm in Florida. I'm not even in New York getting recovery. And this dude had a cut, big dude. Just looked like a fucking racist. Like, I'm, it just looked like a fucking straight up racist. And I've never been in a meeting before. I don't even know anything about recovery. And I'm just sitting here thinking like, this dude's going to say something and I'm going to have to fuck him up. <laughs> like, I'm gonna want, he's going to say some racist shit. Cause I'm not really around white people like this and it's all these white people. And it's like, I'm gonna wind up, I'm duffing this kid. Cause he's going to say something dumb. And he said, I'm big rich. I'm an addict. And he proceeded to share and he shared my story out of his mouth. And I broke down. I just started crying and some woman hugged me, told me she loved me, told me to keep coming back. Like, and I experienced that over and over and over and over. And like, you know, they say, go to, you know, go to a meeting, go to 90 meetings in 90 days, get a sponsor. Like I went to 365 meetings in 365 days. <laughs> like I couldn't get enough of that shit because I kept hearing my story. Like I, I was like, when is this going to stop? When is, when is somebody going to stop telling me who I am? You know? Um, and it was amazing. And, and it was the best part of this program for me is that if you have a stigma about this recovery thing and you're worried about blah, 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 you ain't got to worry about shit because we are all the same. No matter where we're from, no matter what's block, old, we're all the same. You know, there's people my age picking up 35 years. There's people 70 years old picking up 30 days. Like, we're all the same, bro. And I'm so glad I'm in a club with a dude named George who's one who's a great MC named Slain. Like, I feel very honored to be in that club with you, bro. I'm honored to be in the club with you too, brother. Thanks for having me on. Check out new episodes of Breaking Anonymity every Wednesday, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends and subscribe. The Breaking Anonymity podcast is a timeless podcast company production. Executive produced by Chantel Barron, Brett Epic-Mazur, Kyle Eustis, and Michael Barron. Produced by Kyle Eustis and Michael Barron. 
Sound design by Brett Epic-Mazur and Nick Davila. Breaking Anonymity logo created by Paul Lukes. Sound effect voiceover by Tembisa Mashaka. If you are battling with addiction or know someone who is, please call the National Addiction Helpline. 1-800-662-4357. That's 1-800-662-4357. You do not have to battle addiction alone.